0: It's July 2nd, we're reading through the Bible. Our Old Testament reading is in Job, Job chapters 23 through 25. And in chapters 23 and 24, we see Job kind of reaching a a really bad place in his demanding to have a hearing with God and wanting to put God on trial. And he's saying things like, you know, the, um, the, the victims in the world, the people that have been murdered, the bad people getting away with all this stuff in the world, all of that uh, becomes uh, accusatory toward God. God is going to come on the scene, as we know, and he's going to set Job in his place for making those kinds of accusations against God. And sometimes it's that silence from God. And certainly it takes place all the time when we sin and there's not immediate judgment, there's not immediate discipline. And in this case, there's this interval of time between Job's degenerating attitude and perspective toward God and God correcting him. And in that time, it seems to empower sometimes our sin and our complaining. Uh, it's a complaint. He calls it a complaint. He wants to bring his complaint before God and uh, complaining, never a good thing in scripture. we are supposed to do all things without complaining and not just the kind of complaint that is depicted here, the courtroom of, of putting God on trial, but just that whole general attitude, which sometimes even the simple complaining has the connection with our rebuffing against the sovereignty of God and the plan of God and the good of God. And so this is not a good scene for Job here in chapters 23 and 24. In chapter 25, we get to a very short, it's the shortest argument or address by Bildad, the shortest address in the book of Job, by Bildad, who comes on the scene and simply says, there's none righteous before God, which is certainly the case. It's true. Nothing is comparable to God and his greatness and his perfection. Uh, and yet, it may be the right truth. It's just the wrong context, the wrong time. And there's so many things that we can affirm about what he says in this very short chapter. But um That's not what's needed. That is not why God is bringing these things into Job's life in chapters 1 and 2. So um, we've seen that throughout the book. Sometimes true statements, theologically true statements, just misapplied and uh, misdirected and stated in an ill-timed way. So that's what's going on in our Old Testament readings, chapters 23 through 25 of Job. Our New Testament reading, we get to read the second half of Acts chapter 10, when uh, Peter ends up at uh, Caesarea, Caesarea Maritime, by the way. The Bible didn't call it that, but that's the distinction in the ancient world between Caesarea Philippi, which becomes a very important place later on. Uh, But here is a, a Roman port It was uh, the place that uh, had been set up by Rome. It's amazing. If you go there today, you can still see the ruins of the ancient fortress there in Caesarea. It's where, of course, this Roman centurion is stationed at the particular time in the history of Acts. And he is a devout God-fearing man. Doesn't mean he's saved, but he is... About to be in this chapter because we see as the gospel comes to the Gentiles, these Italians in this case, these Romans, uh, Peter, prepped by the vision yesterday, is now in a place to give them the gospel. And here is one of three historic depictions of this gift of languages that we saw back in Acts chapter two, where they are empowered by God to speak languages they didn't learn. And uh, they hear them extolling God in a language that they didn't learn, that wasn't their mother tongue. And it was a sign of the giving of God's spirit, that miraculous sign so everyone can see. And later in the Jerusalem council, everyone could recognize in chapter 15 later, we're gonna see that this was God's spirit granted to them. Something invisible that you couldn't see but a manifestation of it which is not the norm obviously throughout the rest of the New Testament. We learn that clearly in Romans chapter I'm sorry 1 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, that's the exclusive I shouldn't say exclusive, one of the uh, points of emphasis in the Apostle Paul's argument that not everyone has the same manifestation of the Spirit, not even in the first century. Uh, And yet, in this case, it was a very important, essential impermater or um, authentication of God's work in their lives. And then they get baptized in water, and we see that here, and uh, that is a sign to everyone watching in Peter's entourage that these Italians had become genuine Christians. Uh, Our New Testament community imperative is found in Romans chapter 12, verse 17. The first half of verse 17 That's all we're going to deal with. This is a very simple phrase. Uh, Repay no one evil for evil. And I even think within the community of Christ, it's easy for us to be vindictive. So let us just put that down as our community imperative. Do not be vindictive. Uh, People are rude to us. We want to be rude to them. They exclude us from something. We want to exclude them. That is the natural fleshly bent that we have. And I just want to encourage you today to make that your purpose, to say, I'm resolved to not be a vindictive person. If there's injustice, God's going to fix it. Uh, You got to know God's keeping score. He disciplines his children. As we think about the community of believers, that's really our context of application for all these uh, one another's and community imperatives and I just want you to know that God is a God who expects you to be kind even to those who've been unkind to you in the body of Christ uh, and even outside of the body of Christ so don't be vindictive make that your goal make that your prayer this morning after you read through the scripture spend some time thinking about your heart that you would govern that so that you would not in any way repay evil for evil and we'll be back tomorrow to read more of the Bible together